The reading this morning is from Acts 11, uh, starting at verse 1, and it's on page 1105, 11.05. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticised him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Thanks be to the Lord. We are looking at this theme of vision and um, if you keep the passage open Lionel read to us just now that would be a help this is the the second in in a series uh, that we are 
using this term vision. We looked at our mission and our, our church and vision. This is the second. And Martin and uh, Neil set the scene by using the window that we have. And you have that on the reverse of your notice sheet. Um, I'm not going to make too much reference to the top three windows. We looked at the bottom last Sunday. And there's an opportunity for us in home groups to uh, interface and think about what should be, what are our uh, priorities, values and uh, vision together as God's people where he's placed us. What I would like to do is uh, to use this passage now as an example so that we can compare and contrast uh, what it is to be a church with vision. When NASA put the first man into orbit, it was a momentous event. They went, these astronauts went round uh, the, the Earth. But the astronauts got together and presented a problem to the engineers and the technical team. And it was this. That they made one request that they wanted a window in their capsule. NASA came back, having done their research, and said, it's a laudable request, but it's too complicated, too dangerous, too many problems. However, history records that the astronauts prevailed, and that first historic journey, they had a unique perspective that the whole of mankind up to then had never had. A new vision of Mother Earth. To NASA, this is an engineering and a logistic nightmare. It's a problem, and we've enough problems. But to the astronauts, it's a dream come true. A wonderful opportunity, not only to see where they're coming, going from, but where they're coming from, but where they're going to. And the rest, as they say, is history. Do anything new, and there will be people who say, that's a big problem. That's too big. That's not the right time. It's not the right place. Do anything like that. And that partly is human nature, whether it's NASA or Long Crendon. And the background to this series of sermons, of course, is the whole challenge that we face in terms of the future and the building and the vision and so on. So what I'd like us to do with that sort of illustration, and by the way, it was a legitimate concern by the engineers to raise those problems. But problems can be solved. Problems are opportunity to prove their ingenuity. And often our human problems are there to prove God is sufficient. Most of us, I think, as believers, have the, the problem we have is that a great deal of our faith is theoretical. But it's on the anvil of experience that we grow most. So, let's look at this example of a church with vision. And here it is. And I, this is what we need to be now, is to be absolutely clear, not clever. 
there's so many books and manuals that you think actually they're almost too clever, too slick. And many people in the church believe that if we get the right program and, and everything together, then we'll make it. Good illustration would be the grand old Duke of York, you know it. Ten thousand men marched them to the hill, marched them down again. Very impressive. What did it achieve? Nothing. We're not to be clever, we're to be clear. And a church with vision is not simply being persuasive so that people are pressurized. It is people being perceptive so that we see, we see where we are going and indeed where we've come from. So, four quick headings. The first, I'm thinking of this church now as an, as a, as an example of where we are. Yes, the culture is different, the language is different, the problems and so on. But the principles are the same. We are part of the same church in heaven and on earth. And this is a good uh, help to us here today. First of all, then, it's a vision from God. It isn't a group of people have got together and they've got good ideas and now they want to persuade other people. I suppose in itself there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not where we're at here with this passage just look at the context for a moment. Peter, you see, he's one of the apostles and he is giving an account of his experience. And let's be fair, there are subjective guidances that are often apart when God is doing new things. So Peter says in, in Acts 11 and verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, a vision. I saw a vision, something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. Don't forget, he's a Jew, and this isn't kosher. So it's reference to unclean food. Peter is giving an account of this heavenly vision, but the context, just go to verse 2, is strong criticism by fellow leaders. You see, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, where the apostles stayed, the center of the church, the uncircumcised, these strong Jewish people, criticized him and said, look, and it's in quotations, a scandal. Peter scandalized the church. How could you do it? You went into the house of uncircumcised men. Not only went into them, you ate with them. What are you doing? Now, it's hard for us to appreciate that, but it's one of these massive paradigm shifts in thinking. So the vision is from God. Peter says, it's not me, it's what God has done. You see that in verses 8 to 10. That, to me, has always been a source of encouragement and at the same time, rather disturbing. How can, I put it to you now, you think about it, how can a man filled with the Holy Spirit, used so gloriously by God on the day of Pentecost that two, over 2,000 people come to a living faith in Christ. What a leader. Now, how can he say no to God when God wants to do a new thing and do it three times? Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. But it's there, and we have to accept that. That these things happen among leaders. So Peter is struggling. You see verse 8, he says, surely not, Lord. No, Lord. And then verse 9, the voice came from heaven a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. How many times does it take? 
Now that's quite astonishing, isn't it? How strange that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is resisting the Spirit. How strange that he is the charismatic leader and he's refusing the Holy Spirit. God sends the vision and the leader says no. And yet the vision is God-centered, not man-centered. God gave the vision. God dealt with people. God gave uh, the, the Holy Spirit. And God changed the perspective of the church. And that perspective you see there, particularly in verses uh, 17 and 18. Look at that. So if God gave them, it's, it's almost, almost patronizing in a way, Jews talking about Gentiles, them, these people, if God gave them the gift he gave us who, who believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, why should we not? Uh, sorry, there it is. Um, uh, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Who was I? And uh, then they changed their mind. Now, I hope we're not people who go through life saying, well, you know, I've got a I'm not changing my mind. Is that a conviction or is it just stubbornness? So in verse 18, when they, the leaders, heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. It's almost, again, terribly patronizing, isn't it? So then God has granted even the Gentiles, amazing, them, that ragbag of humanity that now they know about him. It's, it's extraordinary, but there it is. Religious people think like that sometimes. So the point is, this is what God was doing. It's God's vision. Secondly, it's a vision for growth. We've, we've tried to think about this all the time. A growing people, a growing church, a growing Christian. This is 19 to 24, there you have it. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is always, always seen in the outflowing of the gospel. It might be seen in other ways. Some people might speak in tongues. Some people might have dreams and visions and so on and so forth. Fine. Those things will be variable, but one thing is incontrovertible. It will always result in the gospel being made known much more. It's an authentic sign of the work of the Holy Spirit, and we need to look for it. And it's the outflowing to the Gentiles. The term the Gentiles, who are the Gentiles today? Oh, not, not just us, but who, who are the people today, in other words, put it like this, who are um, out of contact with the love of Jesus. That's our vision. People who don't know him. Here's the interesting thing, though. This is quite fascinating. When you get to verse 19, you'll see something that you could almost overlook. And this is where we need to catch the vision. Who's doing this? Well, you say God's doing it, but who is he doing it through? Well, interesting, he has circumvented the apostles at this point. A tragedy has happened in the church. The most gifted leader of all, Stephen, who at the behest of Saul of Tarsus is taken and stoned in the prime of his life, what about Stephen's wife and children? What is God doing that he should allow that? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? And if you, if you haven't asked it yet, it's time you did. Because things will happen in your life and say, why does God allow that? But here in the course of time, he's turned tragedy into an opportunity. Because through the persecution in connection with Stephen, 
these people are dispersed, the diaspora of Christians. And they take with them Jesus. And they talk about him. And as a consequence, a community of people called the church are meeting together. That's it. It's not terribly complicated. But who is it through? I don't want to sound patronizing, but may I say ordinary Christians. Ordinary Christians. Not pastors or elders or mature, mature or chapel people, all that sort of thing. Just ordinary people. Ordinary people. That's the vision for growth. Ordinary people, normal believers, sharing the good news. And Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire and is quite strategic. Okay. So we've established that God uses whatever we mean by ordinary people. Of course, he also uses um, key people. We don't want to say, well, the apostles, don't worry about them. No, no. He uses them too. Pastors and elders and so on. And so look in verse 24. You see, this is the, the, the connection here. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Why did they send him? Well, he's a key person. He's a key person. There are key people in the church. We need to be, need to be very clear about that. And notice verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So, God uses ordinary people. God uses key people. And I think, as I've been in the church for a very long time, that this is the most neglected gift among key people and ordinary people, and that is the ability to encourage. We, this is a culture of massive discouragement, of cynicism, and to be part of people who are clear, who know what they're doing, who have a sense of purpose and vision, that is a great thing. God uses ordinary people and he uses key people to encourage. I would say to you that that is a, a vital component for the growth of the church and the absence of it causes the church to fragment and dissipate, turn in on ourselves. I want to give an example of living by vision with this A, B, C, D, E that is going to come up in front of you now. Just try to think about this. Let's try to be very practical here. We're illustrating what it is to live by vision. What, what do we mean? We were trying to illustrate this with the children. The, uh, vision is the ability to see God's presence, see his power in spite of the obstacles. You know, the dictum, two men behind prison bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. What do you see? Danger is that we're so wrapped up in ourselves. Vision is, is, is a big issue, isn't it? It's a big deal. So, attitude. Surely that's the first when we think about uh, vision. When we have vision, our cup, okay, if you like, is more than just a temperament. Is it half full, half empty? Are we positive or negative? Do we see the problems? Do we see the opportunities? Attitude is a very powerful thing. Then belief. We are fellow believers. 
When you have vision, you have the assurance and confidence that God is working with you, personally and collectively. See, you have a greater capacity. Now, let me challenge you with this. The capacity is this, to be stretched. Are you willing? Are we, are we willing to, to be stretched in our faith? It's not an appeal for finance. Ultimately, what we are doing is a faith issue, not finance. Are we prepared to be stretched? If you like, a Christian is like a rubber band. It, it's of no value unless it is stretched. We are of no real value unless we allow the Lord to stop us becoming brittle and inflexible and to stretch us this, this capacity and determination to see something through to hang on, come what may, and then enthusiasm. When you have vision, you have enthusiasm. You do believe that all things work together for good to those who love God. Let me use an example of this, an example of vision. A tourist visiting France, as we were last week. French-speaking tourist, and he comes across a building site, building project, a scene where a large church is being erected. So he approaches three stone masons, and he asks each of them the same question, what are you doing? The first replied, I'm cutting stone. The second said, I'm cutting stone for 70 francs a day. That was before the euro, just as well. And the third, I am building a great cathedral. Equally skilled, same situation, but perspective vastly, vastly different. What are you doing? Filling in time? Cutting stone or doing something that would bless the next generation after generation. That's the point, isn't it? Thirdly, a vision for gifting. We have gifts and we need to use them. Verses 25 and 26, you see there that Barnabas, uh, I've always, always been intrigued with this. Uh, some of us are, uh, particularly, you know, pastors can be a bit insecure, we're sure. Here's Barnabas, he's, he's at ease with himself. And, and he, he says, you know, I can only go so far. I need help. People who don't acknowledge that they need help, whether it's emotionally, spiritually or physically, are going to be in big trouble. And often the church will suffer as well, particularly with leaders. Barnabas exercised vision in two ways, which is, I, I think, rather rare today among leaders in the church. First of all, yes, he had clear thinking. He knew exactly what needed to be done. But this is the second one, which is in short supply, I think. And it's this. He had a servant heart, and he had the ability to involve others. I think Barnabas knew that when he asked for Saul of Tarsus to come, that Saul would eclipse him with his remarkable gifts. And he was, he was at ease with that. Why? Because it's God's church, not his. That's a very salutary lesson, isn't it? 
Now, Antioch, what's it like? Well, it's pretty diverse. It's cosmopolitan. It's Greek. Barnabas being Jewish. Saul, however, knew about the Gentile language, its culture. Here is somebody, let me put it a different way, who has the ability to see his or her own strength and weakness. Barnabas is able to harness the strength of others and he brings, and this is it, he's a risk taker. This is a big risk in the New Testament. Let me illustrate this. Turn back two pages to Acts 9, just to see why it's a risk. Who is this Saul? Oh, we've got, you know, we, it's St. Paul now, isn't it? But it wasn't so before. He's a rebel. And he was the one who caused the death of Stephen. He harassed and hounded the church and put people in jail. So, Acts 9.26. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem to join the disciples... He tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. You see that? The church did not believe that he really was a Christian. Now, I don't blame them for that. I mean, look what he did. He ravaged the church. So Barnabas, do you see this? There's lots of issues here, isn't it? Look at verse 26. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he's the go-between. Isn't that interesting? And you need people like that. He's the go-between. And what does he do? Verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord and so on and so forth. Somebody had to take a risk. When you appoint leaders, do you take risks? Of course you do. And if you think that you've always got to be sure about everything all the time, I wonder how far we're going to get. So, gifting. The essence of church is building up and pressing on and taking risks. And finally... It's not only a vision from God, for growth, for gifting. I hope this doesn't spoil the sermon. It's a vision for giving. That's what we do. We call to give. Final section in verses 27 to 30 is quite fascinating how the church functioned then. But here's a very fascinating picture. You will never see a better illustration of giving inspired by grace than you see here. This is massively counterculture. So, in order to illustrate this, and we, we will conclude with this one final cross reference, turn to Second um, Corinthians 8, and then we'll come back with the conclusion. We're, we're now saying that this is the best illustration of inspired giving, giving prompted by grace. Because grace does something to you. So in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, that's page 1162, 
Second Corinthians 8 verse 7. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this grace of giving. Grace makes you generous. Secondly, look at verse 9, same chapter. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And this is my advice about what is best for you in this matter, and so on and so forth. And then in verse 11, finish the work that you started. Grace makes you generous, and grace makes you grateful. And finally... In chapter 9 and verse 8, there you have it again, grace makes you gracious. Chapter 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It makes you Gracious, And you see it again in verse uh, uh, 14 and 15 and so on. So just come back for this, this conclusion then. That we're saying that this is a vision for, for giving. At the, at the height of Methodism, uh, John Wesley preached a remarkable sermon. The Methodist church was beginning to gain respectability and credibility. It had been a dissenting, fragmented group. And he preached about the need to work so hard that you can save as much as you can. And a work ethic. And then he said, the second imperative is this. Give as much as you can. Two sides of the equation. Working, realizing God has gifted us. Giving, realizing God has gifted us. There are often turning points in movements historically. Like the one we've illustrated with the capsule and the window. Giving. Generously. Gratefully, graciously. So coming back, what we have in 27 to 30 is this demonstration of giving in a remarkable way. Jews and Gentiles to this day do not get on very well. What do we have? Jerusalem, the mother church, the giving church, largely Jewish. Now it's got problems. Now it's in financial straits. The diaspora, whilst it had a great impact on the Gentile world, left the center vulnerable. Antioch, the daughter church, the Gentile, send them a love gift. It's a wonderful picture. It's countercultural. Gentiles giving generously to Jews is no mean feat. 
in any context. And it's a love gift. But there's another principle here as well. It's a principle of history, I suppose. It's the younger now serving the older. We might know that in our family with our aging parents or prevailing needs. It happens. And it's a vision for giving. And immediately we've, we've gone beyond the realm of giving of money. Perhaps the hardest thing is to give ourselves, give our time, give our involvement. That's the point. So, God has given to us this uh, vision in L LCBC during this time. A vision for seeing what is the will of God. Talking and waiting and listening. And being blessed with, uh, with some degree of growth. What a wonderful thing it is to see Cornerstone now established, independent in its own right, with its own pastor, leader and the future. That's a wonderful thing. It's only a little thing, I suppose, in terms of the global needs and a vision for gifting. We need to see new gifts, people stepping forward into the gaps that come and a vision for giving, giving sacrificially until it hurts. I know some of you have said, we, we can't uh, have a new kitchen, we're not changing the car, we're only having one holiday instead of two, we're not doing this. And all that sort of cumulative effect has resulted in people giving really until they felt the impact of it. Giving sacrificially, but it ought to be as well giving strategically. This is our window of opportunity. They don't come that often. And we are called to do it. And this is our day. We are called to be a people of faith, hope and love, equal vision. That's our calling. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's not the church. It's God's vision. It's his vision. And he uses us to that end. A window of opportunity. And this is our day. And it isn't a problem. It's an opportunity. It's a challenge. And together we can face it. We can do that. So we're going to sing our final hymn now.